Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4. Have you ever noticed how, how drastically our passions and our interests change as we grow older? Have you ever noticed that? Think back, and for some of us it might be longer than others, think back when you were a child and, and, and you kind of had that passion to, to play. You remember that? It was all about G.I. Joes and Barbie dolls and Lincoln Logs and things of that nature. And, you know, hopefully you're the boy, you're not playing with the Barbie dolls. And sometimes you can have Barbie versus G.I. Joe war. And, and that just seems so rational, so logical. You talk to your friends about the toys that you would play with. And for some kids who've been born uh, more recent than I, it was about the Power Rangers, right? When you're a kid and Maybe somebody here still has a secret Power Rangers collection. And word for you is get help, right? And then as you grow older, you know, you kind of hit that elementary stage where it's like this, you know, this passion to, to imagine. Remember back when you were a kid and your imagination was going wild? When, when you would go to the store, you wouldn't go with your mom to the grocery store. You were going with, it was a military adventure, Right? When I was a kid, my mom sewed. She sewed and she quilted. And what that meant is that you had to go to fabric stores. And there's nothing that is closer to cruel and inhumane punishment of children than having to go to a fabric store. Anybody else? Can I get a witness in the house today? I mean, my goodness, you're there. And there is nothing when you're a child that is more lame and more boring than fabric. Until you see something related to like a lion and you're like, that's cool. And you have a lady come, don't touch the fabric. And then you go under. Anybody remember in those stores, you can get kind of in those racks, right? You can get in there and you can have, you know, you can imagine yourself as hiding from whatever is chasing you. Some of you are looking at me very weird today. Either you can't remember your childhood or you were a weird kid. So we're all going back and you remember how amazing it was to imagine these things. Some of you, you remember back when you were a kid and a stick wasn't a stick, it was the rifle, right? And you were Chuck Connors, the rifleman. Some of you, you had a, a broomstick horse and that wasn't a broomstick horse, it was the actual horse, right? That, that that Roy Rogers and Dale would use. And, and we had all of this imagination. I remember when I was, I had my seventh birthday. I wanted to get as many kids as I could to come over for one purpose. To line them up in military formation and march and fight imaginary enemies in the backyard. And my parents were thinking, we're going to need help with this one. And then when you get to the, the, the middle school, some of you remember that, right? Kind of like the transition from, from kid passion and toys to middle school to where it's about at least for boys a lot of times it's about pranks I mean when I was in middle school that was kind of our bread and butter I remember one time at a campground in Texas we uh, had the great idea that we would go into a bathroom stall with some water balloons and find someone there and toss the water balloons over while screaming housekeeping and uh, when we heard the cries of anger and surprise we went out and turned off the lights and we laughed and laughed about that it's very quiet in here this morning. And, and, and then when you kind of move out of that middle school 
Can we call it immaturity? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but a rod of discipline drives it far from him. And my parents believed in the rod of discipline. And my dad had the name, he called it the Board of Education. And some of you will get that. Then when you get into high school, it may be a little bit more, your passions may be a little bit more, as we could say, mature. And you have the passion to drive, right? Oh, man, when you get into high school, you just want a pair of these. But you don't want it to be to the Toyota Corolla that this set of keys is. And then maybe it's about a boyfriend or a girlfriend, about your friends at school and about the prom. And how all that, that kind of seems to be your world. And, and the guys are trying to bench press as much as they can and, and, and score as much as they can. And, and the girls are trying to be as pretty as they can. And the same things with girls' sports. And, and that seems to be this passion. Then when you get out of high school, it's the passion to get a job, to go to college. You're enamored with that. You remember? Got to get a job. Got to get a degree. And then after you finish, you kind of have the passion to settle. Hopefully not settle in the term. By the way, don't ever say that. Make that mistake with your spouse. Say, honey, I just wanted to settle down with you. Make sure you put that in a very concise sentence. Otherwise, guys, you will be in trouble. You, you kind of have this sensation that I have my job now and, and I, I have my degree or I'm skilled in my trade and now I want to raise a family. I, I want to get married. And then you get married and, and then hopefully, you know, after that, if we could put, uh, I, I had some props, but some of them were going to really get me in trouble, so I decided not to. But I was going to use, for middle age and with kids, a bottle of ibuprofen. You know, the type of thing that says, Lord, help me to keep my sanity and help me to raise my children. I want my children not to make the mistakes that I made. I have the passion to settle and to nurture and to raise children. Then it gets into retirement. I think a lot of times, retirement can be the passion to piddle around. Seriously. God's blessed us and get to that stage and it's kind of like, well, I, I'm retired, so I, I, I have my projects and then I, I talk about my surgeries, all right? You ever notice that with men, when they're young men, and I'm not putting an age on that, they talk about everything that their bodies can do, running, bench press, jumping, triathlons, and then you take that same group and put 70 years on it and now they're, they're, they're senior citizens. And they're talking about nonstop about everything about their what? Their body and their surgeries and my bunions and my chest has fallen into my drawers and everything seems to be falling apart. I am getting old. Remember when I was a pastor in Georgia, my brother... I came on as youth minister for the summer and we visited a very sweet lady who had a number of gallstones taken out. Now, if you get queasy, I apologize, but this is just too good. She, this is no lie. This is not a preacher's story. She said, yeah, preacher, they gave them to me. Okay. And she reached over and got a Tupperware box that had her gallstones in them. And I kid you not, she began to rattle it around like this and opened it up and showed me the gallstones. My brother gets a little bit more queasy than I do at things like that. And I said, hey, Josh, these are some big golf stones, huh? Huh? And he just kind of turned to the side. And I know he was thinking, Lord, you've got to help me keep it down. I mean, it's just one of those things that when you get older, 
It seems like our passions change with our age. Then you hit the twilight of life, the fourth quarter, the last half. And it's no longer about my passion to drive. Maybe I can't anymore. It's not the passion to go get a job. I can't anymore. It's not the passion to raise a family I already have where I'm not past that point. And it's almost like the very passion of life just ebbs and flows away. We start life, a passion to live, then when we end it, it just all goes away. I ask a question. Could it be that the passions of our age and our health can drive us in life, but not in the direction that God would have us. And if you and I live our lives based only upon what seems reasonable to us, what seems fun and inviting, it very well could be the case that we are driven by passions, our natural desires, and live our whole life and look back on it and see that we were never passionate about what God is passionate for. And the driving question of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 is this. It's a question. Are your passions aligned? Are they synced? Are they dovetailed with? Do they connect with? Do my passions and your passions, do the passions of Rocky Mount Baptist Church connect with the passions of God? And by what we mean with the passions of God, those things that God considers to be of ultimate importance. If any of you have seen the classic movie Lawrence of Arabia, played by Peter O'Toole, he is there with his, his Arab friends and they're talking about what they want in life. And then he, he, he just yells out, he says, a man cannot make himself want what he wants. Have you ever asked the question, why is it that I'm interested in what I'm interested in? Why do I find what I find appealing? Why is it that I truly do what I do? And what we're going to look at this morning is a question that has rocked my world this past week because I am 30. The big 3-0, right? Once you get to 30, it reminds me of the only song, Ain't No Going Back. Are you with me? I mean, it is that point. And what I want for my life and for us as a church and for you as individuals, as believers, is that even though we can't make ourselves want what we want, through the power, this is so amazing, through the power of the Holy Spirit coming into our life and radically changing us, what Jesus calls in John chapter 3, being born again. Some people call it being saved. Some older people calling, call it getting religion. Whatever name you put on it, it is a radical change that God does in our heart. And it is through His power that we can want what God desires. That means that I should desire for myself to become the man that God desires me to be. To become less like Jeff every day and become every day more like who Jesus is. That means the things that used to capture my attention, that used to run my life, no longer run my life. And what runs my life today is what Jesus says is important. 
And I think one of the saddest stories in all of the world is for a man and a woman to live the classic American dream, but then look back on it in retrospect and say, I was nothing more than a product of the passions of my particular age, my culture, and my level of health. But this is something, whether you're 10 or whether you're 110, if we are passionate about what God is passionate for, throughout the scale of your life, you will be able to look back on it and say, praise God, my life, amen, was not a waste. So that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 4, eager, passionate, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Do you see this theme of unity, the oneness? Notice there in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Wow. What an amazing, amazing passage. And last week we looked at verses 1, 2, and 3. There in your worship guide, you have an outline. Let me just give you a very quick recap of last week so that we kind of know where we're heading here in part 2. Last week we looked at several sources of conflicting authority. When we hear things like what we're going to hear today, there's going to be radars that go off in our mind. One of those would be family heritage. Your family not wanting you to become too radical for Jesus. Secondly, church tradition. Coming out of a church that is focused on itself as opposed to bringing the gospel to all the nations. Third, national values, which would be something like the American dream without the power of the gospel. Put in a sentence, get all you can get for yourself so you can be happy. Finally, number four, personal beliefs, things that we just think and we don't even know why we think them. That's why we learned there in verse 1 to live as a Christ follower should live. Say, Jeff, how should I live as a Christ follower should live? In verse 2, it is to live with all humility and with all gentleness, with all patience. And there in your notes to carry the wounded versus shooting the wounded and Go back with me there to verse number 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Here it is, bearing with one another in love. That literally the idea is to put up with one another when you drive each other crazy. Have you ever known anybody in your life and you said, this person drives me absolutely stark, raving, lunatic, crazy mad? There are a lot of smiles, but very little movement in the house. The Bible says that if we've truly been changed, then it is through, this is amazing, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that He allows us to, what's it say? Bearing with one another in what? In what? Help me out. In love. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. So if you have zero patience in your life, if you, the second someone crosses you, the second that you are hurt, if you excommunicate them from the circle of love within your life, you need to question the fact, do I have the love 
the way that the Bible defines love. Because the way the Bible defines love is not the way that we do, where it's all about emotion, right? Where we watch the movie uh, Fifty First Dates or something like that to where people are just enraptured with one another and they're singing songs and it's all about emotion and physical attraction. Is it not? How many movies come out to where the attraction is not based upon something that is just quote-unquote romantic? Now guys, this is not an excuse if you're married to be a stick in the mud and not to be romantic, alright? But what it means is that biblical love means the action, the decision that even if you hurt me, I am committed Not because of how good you are. Not because of how ripped your abs are. Not because of the shape of your body. Not because you're smart. Not because you have money. Not because these things. But because I am committed to loving you, therefore, I will love you. And that's exactly the love that God has expressed to us through the gospel. That's why it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were yet, what church? And while we were yet sinners, liars and thieves and murderers in the heart. Jesus said if we hate, we are guilty of that. Even adultery, lust. If we use God's name in vain, blasphemers. If we dishonor our parents in any way, even if they're not good parents. It's breaking the fifth commandment. All of that put together in that while we were still these things, Christ demonstrated His love by dying on our behalf. So if the God of the universe has sent His one and only Son to take my just punishment upon Himself when I should have been on the cross, I'm the one who was condemned. If He did that for me, and while I was still a sinner, not while I was good, but if He did that for me, then go back in verse number Three, two rather, that is why because of what Christ has done that I can bear with one another in love. Because if I've been truly saved, then I can truly love. And if you've not been truly saved, you cannot truly love. You can have one form of it, but not the true thing. Because the Bible says God is love. And if we don't have God in our lives, that doesn't mean church attendance, but it means the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes once a person gets saved for real. It is at that point that God will fill you with a super, please listen to watch this, with a supernatural love that you can neither understand nor quantify. If we go back to chapter 3, you will see there in Verse number 19. And to know the what? The love of Christ that, here it is, watch this, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible verse. That means that you say, Jeff, I don't see how I can bear with this person in love. I want to give them the wrath of God. It's exactly at the point that we realize it's humanly impossible to put up with some people that the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to do exactly that. So here's part two, the question. Are your passions aligned with God's passions? Are what you're passionate about today aligned with what God says is important? 
That's why we see there in verses 3 through 6, living as a Christ follower is to do this. There in your notes. To love what God loves. Simply put, to be passionate about the work of God. To be passionate about the work of God, which is, and you have it there, unity. There in verse 3, unity. Notice the phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this word for eager is a present active participle. And some of you are like, who cares? Here's why that is significant. Because what it characterizes is an attitude, a placement of the will that is a continued action as opposed to a hit and miss emotion. You ever notice how emotions are fickle? That how they'll just come and go? Especially ladies, if you've ever been pregnant, right? And you, and you come home from the store and you've got mac and cheese and a watermelon and mayonnaise, and you're like, I don't understand what's going on. And guys, it is the same. Our emotions, right? Our physical passions and desires change, but this word for eager literally means to be continually eager to do something. In fact, Lao and Nida, they translate it this way, with the implication of readiness to expend energy and effort. It means to do your best to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now notice that phrase there, the unity of the Spirit. That means that when people get saved for real, that they all spiritually have the same Father. That means that God is the one who saves someone. Do I as a preacher save anyone? No. And if I did... They would be a sorry sight. I heard about when uh, Spurgeon was confronted by a man who was absolutely drunk. And he came up and he said, Pastor Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. He said, yes, you are. But not one of Christ's. You see, if it's up to me and if it's up to us to make each other into what we need to be, then really, who am I to tell you anything? The only reason why I tell stories sometimes is to illustrate the point. I don't want you guys to come to hear what I have to think or hear what I had to eat for breakfast, but to hear the Word of God because it is the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. That will change your life, not a preacher. We all on the same page? And I'm really glad about that because I will, if you know me long enough, I will let you down. If you know a great person in your life, You will find flaws. You know why? The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're here today and you're searching, say, God, what do you want me to do in my life? Where do you want me to serve you? Don't look for a preacher to give you what God needs to give you, and that's a change of the heart. I'm so glad today that it is God who's the surgeon and not me, right? I mean, imagine going in for heart surgery and you have someone come in in camo who's not shaved for several weeks. And they come in and they've got their deer knife on the side. And they say, I just got back from killing deer. I'm ready for brain surgery. Just give me a saw and let's go to work. You know where you'd be? We're in the fastest hundred yard dash out of there. But if you have someone who comes and they have multiple degrees from top-notch universities, 
Their English is perfect. And they begin to tell you about how many surgeries they've done that have been successful. Your heart will slowly calm down because you have faith that the doctor can do the job. In the same way, we have faith that is the Lord that can, as in verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit. With my brother, we had the privilege to go visit some friends in Germany last fall. And uh, when we got off the, the airplane, it was very quiet. Everyone was just standing around. It's, just, it's quiet. You ever, you ever been in an awkward place, right? It's just, for us Americans, if there's quietness, there's what? There's awkwardness, right? Um, people were very polite. Everywhere we went, it was just, it was just very poli- polite society. Very laid back. Very awkward. And then our friends brought us to a German soccer game. And let me tell you what, I was there, it was either 1996 or 1997 at LSU when LSU beat the University of Florida, the Florida Gators. Do we have any Gator haters here? A few, all right. Okay, and they beat the Florida Gators. And I mean, the, the fans and the students just mobbed the field and were tearing down the goalpost. And, the, you know, the security was like, you know, they just like they just went home. You know, it was just like over. There's no way they're going to stop it. And just seeing all of the passion there. Listen, that was nothing compared to this soccer game in Germany. In fact, we're sitting here and about 10 feet over. They have plexiglass that separates the two fan sides from each other. And I hear something loud and all of a sudden I see these big German guys coming up to the plexiglass, punching it. And it's boom, boom, boom. And they have guards like every 15 feet. Then these guys on our side start throwing stuff at the other guys and they start throwing stuff and then a guy tries to come over and it was so crazy that the police detained our side for 20 minutes and, 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 and told they ushered them the other side out of the area in order for us to get out without being jumped. And my brother went over to the side, you know, and these German guys are just going crazy like they're going to kill us. And he had an American shirt on and he was like, you know, doing this. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And man, they just had people who were screaming and they had these songs and everyone was, was singing these songs as loud as they could. And I said to my friend, I said, Wilhelm, I've, I've never seen this as long as I've been here. It's been so calm. And he said, yes, it is like war, but without weapons. And I was like, okay, that explains it. It's where you guys get out your aggression, right? And it was amazing to see the passion. There was this one guy and he was sitting there. It was like a Hillsong concert. He had his hands back like this and his eyes closed and he was singing the, the team anthem. And the words I cannot repeat from the pulpit. But there was so much Passion, hear me, for a soccer game. As I look at verse 3, I and you are to be continually present, active participle. We are to be continually passionate and eager to preserve and to maintain what God has given us. You say, now Jeff, what is the source of the peace there? To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It means a peace that is from the Holy Spirit. Now there are some people, and they are very sweet, they're very um, well-intentioned, but they would say things like, we need to have unity in the Christian world, and we don't need to let doctrine matter 
at all. That's a dumb statement. Here's why. Does it matter that Jesus actually rose from the dead or not? Yeah, Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our hope is in vain. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you know that we're not. That means that once your parents die, you will never, ever, even if they're a believer in Christ, ever, ever see them again. There is no heaven. There's no resurrection. It is all that she wrote. Does it make a difference if Jesus is the only way to heaven or that Jesus is a way to heaven? It's an incredible difference, doesn't it? Because if he's a way to heaven, then why do missions? Just tell the Buddhist, do your best. Try to reach enlightenment. Tell the Hindus, you know what? Do as much good karma as possible and maybe you can get out of the wheel of suffering and rebirth and reincarnation. To tell the Muslims, submit. Be a good Muslim. That's good. But there's no reason to bring the Gospel to anybody, even your own children, if there are many ways to heaven. Please hear this. We're not being divisive. We're not saying that we're better than other people. But Christian unity has always had to be grounded upon the Christian faith. What the Bible says. Can you imagine how crazy of a place it would be if the way that we operated was based upon everybody's personal opinion? I mean, wouldn't that be a madhouse? I heard somebody say that anything with more than one head is a freak. (laughs) All right? And, And what has happened, please hear this, in many churches across the U.S., the reason why there's drama, you know, I love the phrase, say the drama for your mama. I mean, the reason why there's so many problems in churches all across the U.S., especially the South, is because we've gotten away from what does the Bible say. And we think sometimes, well, since I'm a member, I get to give my two cents. No, but because we're a member of a local church, we get to give of our life to serve Christ through that local church. It's a peace here that is given by the Holy Spirit. It's not a peace and a unity that we make up. It's not something that we all pull out our cigarette lighters and our cell phones and sing, we are the world. It's not something that is a human creation, but the peace that is referred to here is a peace that God gives. It is a peace that God gives because, this is an amazing thing, when you get saved, you get literally the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a big phrase, for God is living in us. What an awesome thing. What an awesome reality. And if that's true, we should all have the same goals because we have the same, right? We have the same commander. We have the same objective. And that is to serve Christ with everything that we have. And because we have the chance to serve Christ with everything that we have, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. A friend of mine helped me rebuild a dirt bike several years ago. And not knowing much about dirt bikes, I was asking him questions. And he said, it is very important that you set up your timing chain exactly right. Because if your timing chain is set up wrong, then everything else in the engine will eventually break down. 
And if we as believers do not set the priority up correctly, meaning that a local church and our involvement in it is to bring glory to God instead of get attention for ourselves, it will all fall to the wayside. Now, some people, they've been told, right, that the church is there for you. And in one sense, that is true. If you need anything, call us. If you need a visit, call us. If you have a lost friend who needs to be saved, call us. We want to help. But I'm telling you that when we truly get joy and peace and when we have a bond of unity in the Spirit is when, listen, when you're able to go win people to Christ. When you're able to serve Jesus. When you're able to go to a children's home. When you're able to help out in the choir. When you're able to sit back on a Sunday morning and and be with the children. Take care of the nursery. When you're able to pray for your boss or your coworker, when you're able to live out your faith, it is then that we gain true peace. But if we just sit and soak, you know what will happen? You'll become a bitter, raunchy, mean church member. I'm not trying to be rude or abrasive, but this is what will happen. God has created us to serve. Everybody okay? He's created us to have some part in the gospel. Heard one guy say, if you can't shoot, carry bullets, right? Everyone can do something for the Lord. But if you think that the church is just there to serve you and to make you happy, and everyone is here for me, I believe that Rick Warren's opening line in The Purpose Driven Life, the book, it says, it's not about you. It's not about me. And here's what will happen. You will get mad, you will get disgruntled at your present church, and you will begin to church hop and to church hop and to church hop to the point that you may not even go anymore to say all of these churches are no good, and it's because they didn't have in their constitution and bylaws it's all about you. Now the reason why I say this is not to come down hard on anybody here, but to tell you, please hear me, that the key to joy and peace in the Christian life is when you actually get involved and serve. Because that's what Christ made us for. So there in verse 3, Christian unity. What is Christian unity? You have there in verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope there in your notes. One body, one spirit, one hope. One body, it means the body of Christ. And we'll get to this a couple of weeks from now uh, as we go through chapter 4. We'll come to that later. One spirit. That means that we're going to have one goal. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to carry out any operation if you have people who have different agendas. You ever been in a situation to where someone says that person has an agenda? Our agenda as Christians is to follow Christ. Now there's an interesting word there in verse 4 as well that follows. And just as you were called to, verse 4, to the one hope that belongs to your call. Do you realize the crazy implications if God does not exist and if Jesus never rose from the dead? If God did not exist, then we think that this universe just exploded 
We don't know how, we don't know with what, but that the galaxies are expanding just as if you got a balloon and you drew little circles on that balloon, maybe the size of a pinhead, and you begin to blow that balloon up. As it gets bigger, those little dots will be further and further away from one another. And as the universe grows older and older and older, eventually the planets will die. Eventually, it will be a universe with no life. There's a man named H.G. Wells, and he wrote a book called The Time Machine about a time traveler who went in the future, the far distant future, and he saw that planet Earth was simply a dead planet. And this is what he said. Beyond these lifeless sounds, the world was silent. Silent? It would be hard to convey the stillness of it. Imagine if the world was dead, the oceans had dried up, if there were no people, if there were not even ants. Maybe cockroaches might be around, right? Because it would take nuclear war to kill those off. But I mean, it, the, the planet would be dead. And how terrible the stillness would be. However many people lived and died, it didn't matter. Because God would not exist, there would be no hope. Do you realize that? That as much as we could gain in life, as much as we could grab the world by the coattails, as even the atheist Carl Sagan said, that it's a foolish thing to try to be, quote, masters of this speck of dust we call earth for just a moment in time. And then as time went on and on and on and on and on, your family wouldn't matter. Your job wouldn't matter. In the end, there will be nothing but deadness and silence. As a dead universe finally stops expanding and it is totally and completely dead and you can't even hear a thing because there's not one living organism in any of the galaxies. Kind of depressing, isn't it? Some of you guys are like, man, I need to pop like my antidepressant right now, dude. I want to leave. That's, that's a weird church, man. He's talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantages over the beast, for all is vanity. It's emptiness. God does not exist under the sun. That it doesn't matter. Really, the only logical thing for all of us to do is to do what Jim Jones did. Let's just all commit suicide. There's one YouTube video that I saw, and as a young man who said, because God does not exist, because there's no one out there who cares, and because life is meaningless, we can find meaning to live in defiance of an uncaring universe. But even if you do that... Just say, I can live even though the universe doesn't care. In the end, it's all meaningless. But if Jesus actually, if, it, if, it, if it's actually true, if there was a man named Jesus who came to live on this earth and lived a perfect, pristine, spotless, moral life, if, if, if the Bible's true and, and it talked about how Jesus was tortured and beaten, and how he never even uttered a word against the ones who were torturing him with no mercy. And how Jesus was on the cross. And how he died. And how he was in the ground for three days. And then through the supernatural power of God, 
Jesus rose from the dead. He was dead. Are we on the same page? Like doornail, dead, dead, dead. Did I say dead? He was dead. And yet God supernaturally raised him from the dead. And not only did God do that, but Jesus is still alive today telling us that if you put your faith and trust in me, when you die, you will not cease to exist, but you will be with God and I, the Father, in heaven. And that where I am, you may be also. If Jesus rose from the dead, and if it's true, then we have, what's verse number four say? The one hope that belongs to your call. Listen, if you're here today and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have hope. You may have gone through divorces. You may have had a terrible home life. You may have lost your job. Your finances may be in disarray, but you, through the gospel, you have hope. You have hope. But please hear this. If you're here today and your heart is stubborn against God, and as much as He has shown you His mercy, you have refused to repent and trust Him as your Savior, you have no hope. You do not have the hope of a to cease to exist when you die, but you have what the Bible calls a prospect of the lake of fire that hell and death and the grave will be cast into once Jesus returns. And hell is not just a metaphor for the grave. It's very tense in here right now. It's a real place and it's filled with real people. But through the grace of God, you don't have to go. That's why he sums it up. The one hope that belongs to your call, and that's why... The one Lord, that means Jesus is boss. The one faith, that means that it's all about Jesus and what he did. And the one baptism. This refers to a spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here's the reason why we as, um, as Baptists and many other evangelicals believe in what's called believer's baptism. When the person goes under the water. Because that is the mode that is done in Scripture. That's what you see happening. And secondly, you see in Scripture that immersion going under the water. And by the way, if we baptize you, we won't keep you under the water. You know, some... They're like, I don't want to be baptized. I don't want to die. You know, under the water and then out of the water, it pictures the, be- the life, <laughs> the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that when somebody sees someone get baptized, they're like, oh! So when they go under the water, it's picturing Jesus' death. Yes! And then, bring them up, preacher, bring them up. And then when they come out of the water, it pictures Jesus' resurrection. Got it! That's why we believe in, in believer's baptism. Finally, our action points. Here it is, very simply. Does your walk match your call? We're called to follow Christ. We're called to do that. Does the way that you live your life match with that? The Christian life, please hear me, is all about day after day after day, Jeff becoming less like I was and more like 
Jesus is. You ever seen someone that you've not seen in a long time and you say, wow, you really have changed. And hopefully you can you know, think of something nice to say rather than something not nice to say. And we notice a physical change. But wouldn't it be an amazing thing for those of us who have stumbled on our walk with Christ, maybe you're here and you've lived in rebellion for Christ, to Christ for many years, but you're coming back to say, Jesus, my walk has not matched my call. In fact, my walk has not even matched my talk. But today, Jesus, I'm asking you to take everything that I am and do a work of renewal within me. Make me less like I have been and more like yourself, and God will do that. Secondly, are you willing to carry the burdens of the wounded? Are you willing to help? Third, are your passions united with God's passions? This is the biggest part. Is what you think church is about today what Jesus said it's all about? Are you passionate about people? Would you be excited if there was someone who wasn't white who got saved here? Would you be excited if it's somebody from a very low socioeconomic strata who came and got saved, wanted to be baptized? Would you be excited if we had some biker dudes with tats all over the place that says, my mama eats nails? Would you? Is religious traditionalism what you're passionate for? Is it a way that we take the Lord's Supper? Is it a way that I dress with a coat, without a tie, with a tie? Is it the way that people come in and dress? The way that someone does their hair? If those things are your passions, then may God, if you have heard the Gospel, may God have mercy upon you. But if God has shown you the error of being all about religious traditionalism, you say, Jeff, I don't want to be a religious traditionalist anymore. I want my passions to be what God's passions are for. Tell them today. Third, are you promoting unity or disunity within the church? If, we've, if you've been saved, you have an incredible opportunity to promote unity and unity of vision. Rocky Mount Baptist Church, finally, have you answered God's call on your life? Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Have you answered God's call in your life? I don't know what God's calling you to do today. So for some of you, you look back on your life and you say, Jeff, man, I have been passionate about so many things. I've had hobby after hobby. I've had toy after toy. I've been places and I've done things. But if I, as I look back, I, I realize I've never been passionate about what God has been passionate for. And that's for people being saved and becoming more like Jesus. Today, repent and come back to Christ. We'll close with this. Bible records... In the early part of the conquest of Canaan, there was a man named Joshua and a man named Caleb. They went in as spies when they were 40 years old. They came back telling how awesome it was. But everyone else in their generation said, the enemies are too great and God is too small. So they lost 40 years. Can you imagine losing 40 years 
because of other people's stubbornness. And then when Caleb, when he was 80 years old, he, he, he's there with the young guys going out into battle. Passionate. Man, if I got transported into a time machine and I saw a guy who was 80 come out in front of the battlefield, I'd be like, somebody needs to do something about this. But then to see, as the Bible says, that he had just as much strength when he was 80 than when he was 40. (laughs) And so he comes to the battlefield and for five years he conquered territory for other people. Then he came to the mountain of Hebron, which is over 3,000 feet in elevation above sea level. And this city was filled with the largest people in all of Canaan, the Anakim which sometimes the King James Version translates those as giants. And he comes to this and he says, Give me this mountain. 85 years of age. You know what the story of Caleb tells us? That we, through the power of God's Spirit, can remain passionate and our passions can be aligned with what God is passionate about to any age. If you're here and you were over the retirement, if you think you're on the bottom side of being over the hill, listen to me. The power of God can do more in your life when you're older because you realize the necessity of praying. Amen. No matter what age you are, the question is, Are my passions aligned with God's passions?